Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm well. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. Big news in the world of intellectual property uh, rights. It's, it's very niche market, but we are, I'm, I'm a, I'm a proud uh, member of it. So we're going to, we're going to talk about this. Uh, big news in the world of intellectual property is Disney has sued the estates of a number of the creators of their most famous characters, uh, folks like Steve Ditko, Stanley, Gene Colan, and others in order to head off copyright termination requests that could potentially revert ownership of the characters, uh, created by these guys to the corporate, uh, from the corporate behemoth to the heirs of the folks who created them. Um, some backstory here. I want to explain what's going on a little bit just to get people in the loop. In the 1970s, Congress made it easier for authors and heirs to reclaim uh, the rights to work, the works they had made uh, and that were owned by a publisher as part of a deal that uh, also lengthened the overall term of copyright. This was a, it was a big, big legal fight. Uh, and the, the long and the short of it is corporations got longer copyright terms. And in theory, uh, individual creators whose works had been sold to, as, you know, novels or songs and albums, et cetera, et cetera, were able to uh, to file for copyright termination notices and get control of them again. Um, it basically was a way to look out for everybody, both corporations and the little guy. Of course, corporations probably benefited a little bit more than uh, the little guy from this, but you, you never know. Uh, fast forward to the 2010s when the estate of Jack Kirby sued to terminate the copyright held by Marvel uh, and then Disney on characters like the Incredible uh, Hulk and Thor and, and some others. Um, as Eric Gardner noted in uh, the Hollywood Reporter recently, Disney was winning the case pretty handily. Uh, Disney was looking good in their case against Jack Kirby. Federal courts, federal courts had dismissed the suit. Um, the Supreme Court had not yet taken it up. And despite some signaling that maybe uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was kind of sort of interested in doing it, it wasn't clear at all that the court would take it up. Um, but the studio blinked and they, they, they paid out the Kirby estate, a deal that insiders said is worth tens of millions of dollars. Um, even a tiny risk of losing properties that were worth literally billions uh, was too great for the House of Mouse, hence the payout, which is where we are today, um, and which is why the the studio is engaging in litigation against the uh, the 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 heirs of these creators to stop similar uh, copyright term, termination suits. Um, let's be perfectly clear what's going to happen here, right? It seems pretty likely that something similar to the Kirby estate is going to happen again. Estates will get paid out. Uh, the spice will continue to flow. Um, such is the way of the world. Uh, here's what I find very weird about all of this. Just how personally just how personally involved observers with no actual financial interests have become in these fights. Uh, on the one hand, you have the MCU stands who are tearing their hair out and they're screaming about the unfairness of it all. These folks are super worried that if Disney loses the rights to the characters, there will be <gasps> No more MCU movies. Uh, but no more adventures with Cap or Thor or Spider-Man. No more what-if shows with Black Panther and the rest. Um, won't someone please think of the children and their movies and TV shows? Uh, how dare creators assert their rights if asserting their rights means no more pow-bang-boom action movies? Um, on the other hand, you have the people who are smugly cheering on the estates which I think is a little bit more reasonable, but uh, is still kind of silly. If it was a creator saying, hey, I want what's mine, that would be one thing, right? But when it's an heir or an estate that is essentially shaking down a corporation to get some money for something someone else in their bloodline did decades ago, eh, okay, I mean, fine. 
I don't really think this is like a moral crusade that we should all be uh, getting behind. Alyssa, as you know, I'm a copyright hawk. I'm a very firm believer in the idea of intellectual property as a thing that can be owned uh, both by the people who make it and by the corporations that buy the rights to it. Um, Or the corporations that in this case uh, served as essentially essentially the the houses of these things for their entire existence. I mean, this is the crux of the fight with the Kirby estate is that it was a work for hire. It was always designed to be owned by Marvel, not to be owned by Jack Kirby and and, and his family, um, which is why he probably would have lost if not for the payout. But like, look, the point is, I believe in intellectual property. I think people should be able to profit off of their creation uh, and get paid for the IP that they do own. It's just not really clear to me that this is like a, a fight for justice on either side here. Yeah, uh, what am I? What am I missing? I I actually don't think you're missing very much. Um, I think it's fairly clear that the working conditions at you know Marvel and DC and the contract terms and the way all of this was handled in mid-century were pretty messy. That obviously didn't anticipate the transformation of this sort of kid stuff into a global zillion dollar behemoth. Um, But you're right. I mean, these people are dead. The wrong that was done to them in their lives can't really be justified unless you interpret, you know, people's rights to leave 10 or $20 million to their kids as sort of a fundamental right. Um, But it's, it's sort of a shame that one of these cases hasn't reached the Supreme court just because it would be good to have the intellectual property issues clarified going forward um, and, you know, in ways that would potentially help creators push for more clarity in their own contracts. Well, can I uh, can I push back on this slightly? Because I actually do think that I think that like Marvel and now Disney, the the owner of Marvel, has a much better case just on the rights here. Like, I actually believe work for hire should be a thing, right? If you create if you create something for somebody else uh, and then they have the rights to it, I don't see why. Uh, let's let's set aside the morality of it. I don't see yeah. the legal uh, reason why somebody should be able to. So, so the just a small point though here is that now work for hire is done under an explicit work for hire contract, and the reason for the complications for the uncertainty here is that this work was done, uh, particularly for for Marvel was done at a time when work-for-hire contracts did not exist, so it wasn't explicit. And then you have the additional complication of the Marvel method, which Stan Lee kind of pioneered, where he would sort of vaguely describe a plot, maybe, and then the artist would draw a bunch of pages with no dialogue, and then he would fill in the dialogue later, often in ways that it that weren't necessarily intended by the artist. And so who was the author of that comic? Yeah. Who is well, the, the creator who owns that? The I mean, in some ways, right, The it became the understanding that all of that work was done on a work-for-hire basis because it was done for the company, for the company's purposes, using their tools, often at their offices, not always. Um, and, and yet, it's not explicit. And, it, and now we have this – now it's very explicit. If you do work-for-hire work this week for a company, it's very clear how who owns that work right. and how that's going to play out. But that sort of thing was not at all clear back then. And so that is, you know, sort of forgetting the fact that this is the heirs yeah, arguing sure, sure. about it and forgetting – It's legitimately you know, very it messy. actually I, I confusing and it, like I, it's unclear who should be uh, the owner of these things. I, I understand that. But again, I want to push back here because the Marvel method itself suggests to me a an act actual uh, circumstance in which you have a bunch of people at the same company working on the same product, all trying to 
uh, add their own little bits to it. And maybe Stanley was taking too much credit. You know, uh, Abraham Reisman's book yep. on Stanley is very good and, and talking about like the various issues here and and all of that. But like at the same time, again, you have you have people all kind of working together in a company. They're all in the, you know, the Marvel bullpen uh, back when that was a thing. And they're all yelling at each other. And uh, Stanley's going in and he's putting in the words. But Jack Kirby's making the characters and like kind of plotting the things. Etc. I mean, I just like I, the the Marvel method itself strikes me as almost a de facto obvious work for hire. We're all doing this thing under the Marvel banner for the company. Again, I, I like I, so that in fact was but, part of the legal argument last time this went to court, and that was one of the reasons why it looked like Marvel was going to win the suit is because of the way that it was all produced. Now. Um, I think, though, you know, I think that you're right when it just sort of comes down to to when it comes down to the, the numbers at the end, they're going to look at these properties and they're going to say each one of these heroes is potentially worth multiple billions of dollars in revenue and whatever numbers of amount of profit over a decade. So when you were talking with Thor himself is going to be able to sell multiple billion dollars worth of movies as well as uh, as well as lunchboxes and T-shirts and action figures and Lord knows whatever else. Way, way down the line, actual comic books. Right. And some actual like comic number, books. Probably, number, so, probably a lot of theme park tickets. Like um, the 52nd like item on the Thor revenue list is the Thor comic And so book. how much is Disney going to pay in order to retain those rights, to guarantee absolutely for certain that they will retain those rights, it's going to be a lot because it's worth a huge amount. Um, and they are not going to take even the smallest risk. This is, in fact, what happened in the last case is they were pretty sure they right. were going to win. It looked like they were going to win. Everybody thought they were going to win. And yet, even a even a tiny, tiny chance that they might lose exclusive access and rights to these characters is worth paying a gigantic amount of money to head off. Yeah. And so that is sure. absolutely what they're going to do. And the question is just how much money is it? $20 million It's probably a lot sure. more than that. It's probably, it may well be, uh, I, I, I certainly could imagine a scenario in which there is more than a hundred million dollars that changes hands here overall. Yeah, that's entirely possible. And again, I like, I, I think there's a separate moral question as yeah. to like what. Marvel owed Jack Kirby and his family for the the work that Jack Kirby did and and you know the the lack of credit he was given I mean even just like the lack of respect he was given yeah. for so many so many years that's that's a separate question I do want I want to drill down on the fandom angle here uh, a little bit because I do think it's weird I find I find both like the the fan reaction the like freak out over oh we're not going to get our Marvel movies to be like weirdly inhuman like just, just weirdly, like uh, that's not that's uh, why are why is that your first concern here? But at the same time, like I said, I'm like I am I am slightly skeptical of the critics who are like, how dare these fans ignore the hard work that like the the kids of the creator did? I don't. It's all it's all very up in the air to me. Yeah, I mean, I think this is of a piece with the kind of general overvaluing of these franchises as loci of meaning and the place where people are putting a lot of their time and energy right it's uh yeah. you know the the rise of fandom as essentially an alternative to both politics and religion is a pretty strange phenomenon and one we haven't fully grappled with yet and the fact that so many people are devoting so much of their time and energy to like blandly competent corporate mediocrity is sort of depressing in and of itself 
So, I, I mean, we've talked about this before, but there is there's a real sense in which fan communities on the internet um, in particular, but kind of growing out of the, you know, the, the early fan communities that started with like Star Trek cons in the 1970s, that sort of thing. They view their favorite IP as a kind of community property. They think that because they have invested so much of their personal and collective time in it, that suddenly Star Trek isn't Gene Roddenberry's anymore. It's theirs. Suddenly Star Trek isn't CBS's there anymore. It's there. Suddenly the Spider-Man isn't Sony's or Marvel's anymore. It's, it's all of ours to own. Um, and in a deep sense, you know, I, I think that's wrong. The companies and the creators own these products. But there's a sort of two flip sides to this. Is this a three-sided die? Is that even possible? There's two flip sure. sides to this. One is the 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 companies, Mar Marvel and Disney and sort of Star Wars in, in particular, have really encouraged that mindset. And they rely on that sort of dedicated fan who believes that that they own the Incredible Hulk in some deep, like, metaphysical sense, right? He's all of ours. He's in the, you know, uh, he is a story we all tell to ourselves. And so they encourage that. And then when fans get upset about this sort of thing, that is in part uh, an outgrowth of the ways that these big corporations are saying, hey, fans, you know, sure, uh, we technically own all of the rights to profit off of Iron Man, but he's he's all of ours, isn't he? Really? We all love him together. <laughs> and then like and yeah. then they and then it's like, wait, no, what you're telling them is you guys own this. And when in fact you want to assert your own rights to own this. But I will I will um as a as something of a copyright dove, not I think not one in a like a as deep sense, but I see a lot of value in expanded fair use and in limiting intellectual property rights. And I will just point to one very small example. Uh, so in the before George Lucas sold off Lucasfilm and Star Wars, he actually was pretty, uh, pretty open about what he would let people do with his with the Star Wars properties, just so long as they didn't profit off of it. And so there was this huge kind of fan creator culture that grew up around that, um, including some of the the best early, um, you know, Internet and not quite not slash fiction, but sort of just fan creations. Uh, one that I remember particularly uh, that Sonny. I would bet you have seen, I don't know about you, Alyssa, but it's called Troops. It's from 1997 sure. and it is a cops, um, it's it's a cops parody, but with stormtroopers. And storm this troopers, was back, you know, yeah. way before YouTube existed when video was very hard to download and upload. Uh, you know, digital video technology had not proliferated. But I remember, you know, being in high school and spending like 90 minutes to download, I don't know, a 10 minute or five minute <laughs> little video and and being so delighted by the fact that this thing existed and, they, and somebody had just made it, had not profited off of it at all um, and had just sort of said, look, I want to take, I love Star Wars so much. I want to take that and make my own thing out of it. And there is, there is a lot of kind of value that could be unlocked for the world by, by letting other people take a crack at these properties, which do in some sense, I actually think that like, that in a, a strict legal sense, obviously Spider-Man is owned by Marvel and then rented out by Sony in perpetuity, right? And and yet we do all kind of own Spider-Man in a little in a little sense, no, right? We, don't. We, we all no, we, don't. we all have in I a very say, we all in a have very a, specific sense. We do not. We all have a stake in Spider-Man, and we all have um you know we we all have invested something in like in in the in, in these mythos and in these worlds, and I do think that there are. That there is 
that there's some value to be unlocked for consumers and even for the properties themselves to um, should they ever you know fall into the public right. domain. That said, Star Wars is an interesting case because at the same time that there were these vibrant fan fiction communities around Star Wars, of which I was part, I literally had a pen pal who, like, he and I traded Star Wars fanfic, like, by snail mail. Um, Nerd. There was an entire <laughs> licensed continuation of the Star Wars story that was much more expansive, yeah. much more playful with the big ideas about you know, the force and the Jedi, um, but also that was able to sort of tell stories outside of that central question and to experiment with genres and tones and different kinds of characters then has really happened within the continuation of the Skywalker saga. And that was actually a case of, you know, corporate IP being stewarded kind of well and creatively. I, literally, as I'm sitting here in my home office, there are copies of um, like the X-Wing Squadron books, or which were written by uh, the video game writer Michael Stackpole, like on my bookshelf. And, you know, I, I don't mistake them for great works of science fiction, but they have always stood to me as an example of, you know, what you could do simultaneously while stewarding officially IP creatively and expansively while also letting fans play in the sure. world outside. Sure. I mean, look, I think Star Wars actually did a pretty good job of all this with the EU with the expanded universe or whatever it was. Expanded universe, right? That's the official. official I mean, all term. of that stuff was officially licensed and, you know, it was just run right, through that Lucasfilm. stuff was officially licensed. And also, but also, also George Lucas kind of turning a blind yeah. eye to the, you yeah. know, the, the, the fan stuff, the cosplay and all that. Like, I understand, I, I think that that like strikes the perfect balance and I'm not, I'm not saying that all studios should always crack down on all of these things. I mean, we're we're again, it's it's this is a this is a fight that has to do with money between folks that none of us know. And like frankly, again, I just like I'm not I'm not totally sold on the like moral claims of the 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 heirs as because I as I said, I'm copyright hawk, but I also think it should uh, essentially evaporate when somebody dies. I mean, like this story about Roald Dahl's estate selling Roald Dahl's body of work to Netflix for 500 million pounds um, or $686 million or whatever, you know, the, whatever the exchange rate is right now strikes me as crazy because he wrote, he wrote some of those books 60 years ago. He's been dead for 30 years. Like I, at a certain point, the public domain does, should, I think exist in, in a certain form. And we are, uh, we are, we are, kind, we are very much, kind of getting away from that just as a concept. I just think that the question here is what the proper marginal tax rate for uh, unrealized capital gains from Incredible Hulk-related material is. Yes, yes. All right, uh, so what do we uh, think? Is this a, is it a controversy or a controversy that Disney is suing the estates of, a cre of creators to maintain control over their intellectual property and then probably settle with them for like 10 million bucks in a year or two? Alyssa. It's non-troversial because capitalism. Uh, Peter, I think it's a little bit of a controversy. I mean, you think everything's a little just bit of a, a little bit of one. Yeah, uh, it's it's a controversy. It's all going to get settled. People are going to get paid. I do agree it's with gonna that. It's going to be great. I think. I think again. I think the fandom element here is much more controversial. I think like people getting angry uh, either at the creators for trying to take away their toys or uh, or at the studio for trying to you know screw the kids of of creators. I just all of this is silly. Sunny, I know we got to do another segment, but I got to ask you a question. Which do you sure. hate more? Bad fans or film Twitter? 
I think there's a, I think there is a lot of overlap there. I don't think you should treat those two <laughs> things as false choice. Uh, mutually the exclusive. Uh, they're just flip sides of the same coin, really. So. All right. Uh, if you enjoy the show, and who doesn't, it's great. Uh, make sure to pay all of our heirs tens of millions of dollars when we die uh, so you can keep listening to it. Make sure to head over to atma.thebullwork.com where we're going to be talking about our favorite biopics uh, and whether or not the genre has reached its limits, at least in its most traditional form. Uh, speaking of biopics, on to the main event. Uh, this week, we are discussing The Eyes of Tammy Faye, the new movie about the rise and fall of the televangelist couple Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, starring Jessica Chastain as Tammy Faye Baker and Andrew Garfield as her husband, Jim. The Eyes of Tammy Faye traces Tammy's hard scrabble youth, uh, during which she was kept at arm's length by her mother for being the product of a marriage of divorce. Uh, after falling in love with Jim and his iteration of the prosperity gospel, uh, she gets married and they go on the road. Uh, in the back of his fancy Cadillac, spreading the good word. Um, after getting a job on Pat Robertson's TV channel, the two feel stifled by his uh, trying to take over their work and head off on their own. Piggybacking on a satellite feed, the two reach 20 million households and raise hundreds of millions of dollars, spreading their ministry around the world, creating a literal amusement park for the faithful and building a nice little life for themselves, complete with mansions and furs and lakeside homes and more Cadillacs, I presume. Uh, it all comes crashing down, of course, in a rush of greed, sex, drugs, and all that sort of good stuff. Uh, uh, also, though, because Tammy Faye is shown violating the wishes of Jerry Falwell, who is played in this movie by Vincent D'Onofrio like he's channeling Dick Cheney <laughs> into the role. I didn't, I didn't quite get what was so going on really there. So you really liked it, right? I, I didn't quite understand what he was doing there, but whatever. Uh, but anyway, Tammy Faye uh, falls falls on uh, Jerry Falwell's bad side because she is treating AIDS patients with decency. Um, as, as everything comes crashing down, there's a humiliating montage in which the couple is forced to rehash their picadillos on national TV. Uh, and then Jim is sent to jail, and Tammy Faye rents a ratty-looking one-bedroom apartment. And then in a triumphant and faintly ridiculous musical number, Tammy Faye is reborn, the red white and blue decor chosen by director Michael Showalter makes, a, makes it a not-so-subtle reminder of the ways in which religion and business are tied together in the U.S. of A. Uh, it has, it's very meaningful, people, very meaningful. Um, the, the, the problem with this movie, as far as I'm concerned, is twofold. Uh, the first is that it feels like a parody of a musical biopic just without most of the music. Um, and the second is that it is just completely skin deep. Uh, we don't really get to see much of Tammy Faye uh, or her or like what she's really thinking about anything. Um, it, it really just kind of goes to the makeup and the clothes that she's wearing and how much fun she's having and uh, then how sad she is later on. I, I, I have no real sense of the people who were hurt by the bakers. And there were a lot of them. I mean, there's a reason they went to prison. It's because they were taking donations from people and then using it for their own personal gain. And we get really very, very little of that. Um, and I really don't I don't get a sense of why Tammy Faye connected so deeply with AIDS patients and the gay community. And I, I like understand that she's kind of a camp icon at this point. Um, but it's it's hard to get any real sense of that from this movie. It's it's treated so superficially and so basically that I like it almost felt like kind of a cop out, frankly. Um, I think Chastain is good in the role. I think Andrew Garfield is good in the role. Uh, they're both doing a lot of acting, which is not necessarily the same thing as good acting. Um, but I, I, I did, I did enjoy their, their work for the most part. Um, and she's being positioned as an Oscar season darling. I think she's probably lined up for a nomination here. We'll see what happens. Um, but I just don't, it's just, the whole thing feels stretched out and empty and there's just not much there there. What am I missing, Peter? Uh, 
I agree with a lot of that. I think this is an interesting movie, but not an entirely successful one and maybe even mostly unsuccessful. So it, as you said, it's got a very predictable rise and fall arc. Um, but I would say easy, even more than that, it's not just that it's shallow. It's that the movie is weirdly uncomfortable with any sort of ambiguity or any sort of character detail that doesn't underline a very simple, obvious point. And so it does this sort of drama school thing where you're taught to build scenes that have subtext, right? And so something's really going on in the scene, but it's never said by any of the characters, but you can kind of tease out what this, what's really happening here. And every single scene works like that, especially when you get into the second act. And yet the subtext is always so simple and so explicit that there's only one thing ever happening in any one of these scenes, which me, which just makes the whole thing feel sort of sort of flat. You said empty. I think that's right. But there's just a weird kind of lack of depth to every single scene in this movie because it's always reduced to this is the scene where we find out that Jim Baker is not paying enough attention to her sexually. This is the scene where we find out that, oh, she's had, got the singing career, but we're actually, it's, ah, she's going to be interested in the producer. This is the scene where... Now she's having a fling with the producer. And it's literally that. And it's just like sort of flipping through a picture book with one sentence captions that tell you what's happening at every given point. And it's it's an odd experience. Um, I will say the one thing that I liked most about this movie or sort of most about this movie's story and its approach to its characters was that particularly with Tammy Faye, it tries to be empathetic. And this is this is a set of characters who are deeply weird and who would not necessarily generate empathy from a big Hollywood production. Though you can see why they, you know, sort of why they sort of uh, try to portray her as a, a gay camp icon slash saint, right? You know, in some ways. Um, but she's a weirdo and she's not somebody who is necessarily easy and obvious to like. And she very much could have been portrayed um, in a way that is mean spirited. And this movie didn't go there. And it does, it does make an attempt to take a character who is not obviously just sort of a, somebody who is ripe for, you know, for sanctification from the Hollywood uh, you know, biopic machine and attempts to say, look, this is a person with value, uh, a person who actually we should look back and think maybe this person got a raw deal and maybe this person actually brought some good to the world. That said, I totally agree. We didn't actually learn very much about her. In fact, we learned more about Jim Baker. The movie does a really yeah. interesting thing, painting him as a uh, basically a sort of real estate developer who got in over his head. But I'm curious to hear yeah, what I, Alyssa has to say about this. Alyssa, I, I, Alyssa, I want to I, I want to come to you in just one sec. But I, one thing one thing I want to just drill down on here, Peter, is that like yes, I agree that this this movie this is the sort of person that a Hollywood movie would typically look on with heaps of scorn. Just just look at just you treat it like total trash, and they don't. But I don't understand why not. I don't there's nothing in this movie that makes me that makes me say, oh, OK, I get why they like her, um, except with the very, very the absolute most basic us versus them mechanic of having Jerry Falwell be there and Jerry Falwell be the bad person she is against. I think that's basically it. And the movie doesn't give us much else. <laughs> and it's that's a problem. And it's, I, it's not, I agree it's, that it's an issue at the same time. I was prepared for this to be a, a much more mean-spirited film than it was. 
Alyssa, what did you what you make of Eyes of Hampton? That's interesting. I mean, I was the one of us who was most interested in this movie um, for a bunch of different reasons. And so I'm probably the person who was most disappointed by it. Um, I think there are things about it that do work. I actually think Chastain is better in it than either of you are quite giving her credit for. And it, her performance here actually kind of harkens back to her performance in The Help, which was one of her breakout roles. Um, and in that movie, she plays the sort of slightly trashy wife who's married into this, you know, sort of old money, very segregated society who doesn't really understand um, its racial norms and who is kind of a sexual bombshell in a way that makes the other women around her uncomfortable. And here again, she's playing a character who kind of represents permissiveness in a way that's really interesting. And I do think that the movie captures something that was kind of key to her appeal, which was that because, you know, she was someone who could quote scripture and, you know, emote in the various ways she did, she created a kind of permissive space in the media for Christians to be more engaged around issues of sex. I mean, there's that segment of uh, where she's, you know, talking with the entrepreneur who's invented like a penile implant for people who are dealing with erectile dysfunction. And that's- It's a pump. It's a pump. Yes. Yeah. And it's, so it's something that like, that's a segment she really did on the show. Yeah. Um, but she represents, you know, she was this sort of Christian alternative to Oprah in certain ways um, that is very representative of a sort of specific moment in American media. And I think where the movie doesn't quite, where the movie misses a big opportunity is to make this a story about Tammy Faye Baker and the arc of sort of media and American pop culture, because, you know, there's that um, moment where they recreate a really famous interview she did with um, an AIDS patient who was also a Christian minister. And um, I mean, that interview really happened. It genuinely was a huge deal. The pastor is still alive um, and sings with the gay men's chorus uh, in LA, I believe. Um, but the, the movie kind of cuts off short in a weird way. She, you know, Tammy Faye Baker ended up doing reality television. She was on The Surreal Life. Um, you know, she, like, her status as a camp icon comes in part because the LGBTQ community, including a lot of drag queens, really embraced her even when, um, you know, the PTL empire was falling apart. This is based on a documentary. That was narrated by, uh, by RuPaul. By, yeah. by RuPaul Charles, who is you know, sort of the most famous avatar of drag in America right now. Um, and so it this misses being a story about, you know, the rise of cable television, about a certain kind of confessional talk show and the place that she occupied within it, and then her sort of transition into, you know, reality stardom and camp towards the end of her life. Um, and I think that is, I mean, it's just a missed opportunity. And you guys are both right that it misses a chance to be sort of nuanced and gimlet about her and her motivations and what she knows. The movie totally skips that after she and Jim Baker divorced, she married Ro Messner, who was the real estate developer who'd done a lot of the Heritage USA yeah. stuff, who himself went to jail for fraud um, and who is played here by the actor who played Joel on Parenthood, who's like this, you know, uh, you know, who clearly is brought in for the sort of like sympathetic vibe. But who was the the real life person was also a crook. Yeah, 
I mean, this is this is the thing about the movie that I just don't get is that she, in in a very real way, she is actually the least interesting person in all of these uh, dramas. Like she she or at least the least necessary person in all of these dramas. She's like the most peripheral person in all of these dramas, and we don't we don't really get. I I don't understand what the movie is trying to tell us. Yeah. What, about her or about the about the world. Well, I think it's trying to I think it's trying to tell us that actually she wasn't the villain. Jim Baker was the villain and she was uh, she was exploited and abused by him. And she, it is it is yeah, an attempt to she... reposition her as the sympathetic person in that relationship uh, rather than as a co-conspirator in the, the their villain, his villain. But uh, but I am. It is not clear to me why I should care about her not being the villain. Because right. And also, I like. Also, yes. I'm not entirely sure that's right. Because remember when she, when when Roe Messner is given being given the first pitch on you know uh, Crusader Land or whatever whatever Heritage the, USA Heritage USA. Yes, but you uh, but you know what that scene that, is. So okay, in tell, that in that scene the, in that scene she comes in and seals the deal. She is the one who comes in and uh, flirts with him enough to get him to to. Uh, sign off on the thing, right. which suggests to me that she is much, much more active than you are suggesting that she is just some, so some kind it of- It is the one time when we see her participating in his schemes and it does two things. One is it helps him out of a jam. So she is, she is there. She's, she's on pills. She's upset. She's having a hard time. But even when he's been awful to her, she is, she helps him when he needs it. And then he uses that in, I think one scene or two scenes later, he, that gives him the idea to position her pain as a thing that they can exploit to raise more donations on television. And so once again, it puts him as the, you know, the, the bad yeah. villain guy. And it's, it's, it's a very simple sort of framing. And I, I, I agree that it's, it's, there's not a lot there, but I do think it's pretty clear what the movie is trying to say. I just don't think it's all that interesting or deserving yeah. of a running time this long. The movie was, the movie is definitely, it's only and about it two hours, but it, yeah, it drags feels and long. it really yeah. is 20 minutes too long. Yeah. Every every scene's about 30 seconds too long. Well, and you know what you're saying, Peter, in terms of this being a movie that's about sort of repositioning her, that's it's a, a sort of fundamental misjudgment of what the story should have been, right? Because it's I mean, it's not like I mean, Jim Baker is out there like hawking fake coronavirus treatments. Um, so to a certain extent, he's still like a minorly relevant figure. But this should be a story about excavating sort of a kind of media entrepreneurship. And also, frankly, a specific strand of Christianity that has had a renewed and politically potent influence, um, especially in the role of prosperity gospel pastors like Paula White um, during the Trump administration. And so it's it's a movie that picked the wrong story to tell, uh, which is a bummer because if it picked the right one, it's really interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess, I guess there could be a very interesting story here. I just don't. I it it is. This is not is very, it. Yeah, this is just. It's just not it. I I was I was kind of excited for this. I like Jessica Chastain a lot, and again, I think she's fine in this. Um, I I probably liked her a little less than than you, Alyssa. But there are some weird. Like, I, can we just talk about Vincent D'Onofrio for a second? Yes. What is he doing? <laughs> what is he doing as Jerry Falwell in this movie? Because I don't understand it. He I, like, is looking large. <laughs> like he's just like I mean, it, being like, a large person. But, but, but what's weird is that he doesn't even have Jerry Falwell's 
tonal cadence. Yeah. Like the yeah. the it's the easiest thing in the world for an act for a skilled actor like Vincent D'Onofrio, who is a very skilled actor, to like at least get the voice mannerisms of somebody like this down. And it just feels wrong. Yeah. And I think that um, you know, I was watching this movie, I was thinking back to um Fanny Flagg's Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe, uh, which is her novel about a sort of semi-rural community in Georgia um, at mid-century. It's very good, Um, but it's structured in flashbacks between the sort of mid-century characters and a woman living in Atlanta in the 80s. Who And interestingly, like the PTL Club, the 700 Club, um, Jerry Falwell are all sort of like accompanying background characters to this lonely narrator. And, you know, it's sort of, odd that this movie positions Falwell as so sinister because that's certainly the way that he's remembered in contemporary progressive circles. But um, he too, like Robertson, was, you know, sort of, you know, there's the manipulation later in the movie where he essentially coos the PTL club from the bakers. Um, But the movie doesn't get his, you know, the sort of avuncular image that he too tried to project through televangelism and to a certain extent how successful that was. I mean, you get the very sort of sour fire and brimstone stuff that is how the people who, you know, thought he was awful and count me among them, uh, remember him for, but it doesn't get at the sort of his ability to be a warmer performer and the sort of space and role that gave him within the community. I mean, the yeah. movie also sort of hints at tensions between, you know, Baptists and charismatics and, you know, the yeah. sort of consolidation of this movement, but never really does anything with it either. I mean, Jim Baker is the one who gets to be a little more warm and appealing uh, in public anyway in this movie. But Sonny, you said you liked Andrew Garfield in, in this role. And I just think that's crazy. It's not that he's bad. It's that he reads like inextricably way too young. And he had, I just felt like I was watching a 24-year-old in gray well, hair makeup the entire uh, time, and it, especially I, in the back half of yeah. the movie when he's, he's supposed to be older. And I just felt like I get why they brought him on, and I don't think the problem is something that is really his fault, and I, I think he's a good actor. I just thought that this particular performance it's, really didn't work. Um, there's, there's a moment in the movie where they cut, and he has aged like 15 years in a single cut and it and it just is the the old the old person makeup is not is is not great on him for sure i mean I, he's I, I i just kind of i kind of liked the theater kid giving it allness sure. that both he and jessica chastain bring to this there's a lot of there's a lot of uh again there's a lot of acting yeah there's a lot of emoting there's also a lot of makeup and i i will say there's that, a lot of that in particular the the chastain makeup in the scenes where she is uh, an older Tammy Faye is genuinely impressive. And while you, if you know what Jessica Chastain looks like, it's very obvious that there's prosthetics being used. On the other hand, it doesn't look like prosthetics. It, it's one of no. the rare, no. like big makeup, you know, uh, effects that I have seen where I, I was like, I know there's a bunch of like styrofoam hanging off of her face and painted and like, but it's, no. it's like impressively moves with her. Um, and she, seems seems natural and realistic that a bunch of those uh, kind of big prosthetic makeup jobs uh, often seem like, OK, that's cool looking, but it doesn't look real. 
Yeah. Well, and that opening scene where the makeup artist trying to get her to take off her makeup, which is going, yeah, a lot of the stuff is tattooed on, um, is one of the nicer scenes in the movie just for its emphasis. Is like, this is someone for whom artificiality is at the core of who they are. And, check- yes. and that that is the, the idea that the movie is trying to impress upon us about her character. And I think yeah. it mostly fails to actually get at that. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, I bet I bet if the screenwriter were listening to this and arguing with us back, um, uh, he 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 or she would say, I'm sorry, I don't actually have the screenwriter's name in front of me, uh, but would, the screenwriter would probably argue something like the reason it's empty is because ultimately that artificiality is who she was. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And as a side note, Jessica Chastain has said that doing the makeup for this has had like a permanent deleterious effect on her skin. So ladies and gentlemen, leave the makeup to, you know, the folks at Wigstock and RuPaul's Drag Race and save your dewy freshness. Tammy Faye Baker should not be your icon. Okay. Uh, so what do we think? Is it a thumbs up or thumbs down on the eyes of Tammy Faye? Alyssa? It's a regretful thumbs down. Peter? Uh, I think we should do a special bonus episode on makeup with Alyssa explaining it to us, but I think this movie is bad. So that's thumbs down. You have to say it. Say the thumbs words. Thumbs down. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's a thumbs down. Uh, I, I, I just, again, I don't understand what they were going for, and uh, maybe I'm just dumb, but it did not it did not work for me. Um, all right, that is it for today's show. If you loved it, make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode on the biopics we love or love to hate. Uh, and make sure to tell your friends. Strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If you don't grow, we will die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I will convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. And I'll maybe even get you to double that pledge. You got to double that pledge. Double that pledge, folks. All right. Uh, see you guys next week. Bye.